Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, you rode an elevator this morning. It's true, I did. I, I rode, two. You rode two elevators? Mm-hmm, two banks of elevators. Oh, do, do explain, because I only rode one. Ah, well, see, you're coming in off of MARTA. Right. And so you're coming in um, at the ground level, so you only take one bank. But if you drive into our office building, you have to take two different sets of elevators. Oh, okay. So I, guess I had twice, twice the fun. Twice, huh? See, I took an escalator up from MARTA, and then the elevator up in our building. I could have taken the MARTA elevator, though I think it doubles as a bathroom so I, I try to avoid it. Well, I was about to say, it's, it's part of our public transportation system, right, Marta? Right. And I will confirm that it does smell like urine in the elevator banks. <laughs> now, in this episode, of course, we're going to talk about elevators. Mm-hmm. And it's not just going to be, uh, we're not just going to focus on the mechanics and all that. Uh, though the mechanics are pretty fascinating when you break them down. We're going to get into the psychology of it, the culture of it, elevators of the past, or, or possible elevators of the future a little bit. But uh, to kick things off here, I want to ask you, and then I'm going to ask myself the same question. Name me a fictional elevator or an mm-hmm. elevator scene that particularly um, excited you and a real-life elevator that you loved and or feared. Hmm. Okay. All right. So I I debated about this because I was thinking about this. I thought, well, I think that the one that made the most impact on me is probably the elevators from The Shining. Because blood gushes out of them. But you don't really spend much time in the elevators. So, but just the idea that blood would come gushing from them. And then that, that thought me to, that, that got me to thinking about how in a lot of, um, movies at least, elevators are, are the scenes for awful things happening. Oh yeah? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There's usually some sort of, I don't know, heist going on or in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, um, God, goodness, goodness. Yeah, yeah, there's that, remember there's the blood dripping down from the hatch. I totally forgot elevator. about that elevator scene, but that is, that is a great sequence. Uh, terrifying. Yeah, yeah, awful, awful. So I started to think about how that really feeds into sometimes our phobias about elevators. Cause really, I mean, what is it but just a little metal canister that you seal yourself into? Um, which leads to, again, fears. Cause I was thinking about, a building called the Weston Peachtree in Atlanta, and it's a very tall building. Oh, yes, the Weston. This is the one that looks like a big uh, paper towel roll. Yes. Ascending into the yeah, sky. Yeah, a glass paper towel roll. Yeah. It has a revolving restaurant at the top. Which yeah, is the Sundial the place restaurant. That us uh, Atlanteans take out of town guests. Guests, too. Yeah, because, like, woo, look at us. We're moving around as we eat. <laughs> um, but the terrifying thing is that their elevator is glass, and it's you, you're going up on the side and you see. Um, if you if you're someone like me who has a fear of heights, then obviously you begin to see the landscape unfold in front of you, and mm-hmm. you begin to inch up more toward the door. Yeah, those, so those are my examples. Those are some some interesting elevators for sure. Um, the the ones at the Westin. Uh, I I tend to to really enjoy the ride, but my wife she uh, she just kind of looks at the door and try because she uh, she's not crazy about the the glass. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I and mean, also she's a little bit claustrophobic in, in elevators sometimes. So, um, so, but we'll discuss the the psychology of, of elevators a little more as we continue. For my own part, the real world elevator that I often think about, I have to go back to my college days in Knoxville, Tennessee, the University of Tennessee. There was a, a dorm there called Melrose Hall, and I think Melrose Hall is still there. I don't know if it's still a dorm or if it's been incorporated into something else. But when I went there, it was. It was really cool because it was the, it was a dorm exclusively for international students 
and uh, socially introverted people like myself, who uh, you know, upperclassmen who weren't leaving campus to find exciting apartment living, but but so, needed a room to themselves in a dorm. When you got off the elevator banks, did it say that? Did it say Melrose Hall for the international <laughs> students yeah, and yeah, the socially but, introverted? But it was it. They updated it in recent years because when I went there, the beds were all really short, like leftover from World War Two. So mm-hmm. I had to, I had to like sleep with a mattress in a really weird position because it had a footboard, and I'm I'm fairly tall, and uh, and there was no air conditioning. So during the summer, you just had to sweat it out or live exclusively at night or go down and sleep in like the one or two. Uh, refrigerated, not refrigerated, uh, basically refrigerated um, rec rooms, mm-hmm. and it had this ancient elevator. The this dorm was not that tall. I think it was three, two or three floors above ground. Uh, but one of the things that made it awesome was that there were two basements. There was a basement where there was just a lot of there were offices and dorms. Some people actually lived in the basement, and then there was a, a sub basement. And to this day, I wish I'd found a way, talked to somebody and found a way to visit the sub-basement because I love the, I- the idea of of there being an extra sub-world down there and, like, what does it consist of? There are no dorms down there, or are there? Uh, what kind of strange creatures uh, live down there in, mm-hmm. in the sub-basement of Melrose Hall? I don't know. Uh, and it also had a little gate, the old school gate that you had to pull across oh, it. Oh, wow, yeah. And the, the clunky buttons that uh, that look like they're, they're part of a furnace or something. Uh, so I... I loved that elevator. I have no idea if they still have it. Maybe they replaced it. Or, sure, they upgraded it. Yeah. Probably took out the the grate. It was it was indeed great though. In, in the G R E A T sense. Fictional elevators. I always come back to one of my favorite movies, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. In this uh, particular movie, you keep encountering elevators that only go down. And I'm all I've always been uh, inspired and uh, and fascinated by. By subworlds and uh, and underground spaces mm-hmm. and uh, and descents and so uh, these elevators that that only go down are, are always just really fascinating to me. Um, in Big Trouble in Little China, there's a scene where they they're taking it down. It ends up the elevator goes into water and they have to escape and swim out through this kind of watery dungeon hell environment. And then there's another elevator they take straight down, which is plush and looks like a really fancy Chinese restaurant on the inside. And there's a wonderful scene where all the heroes are are packed into this little elevator. And you have sort of a cliche elevator scene where you know people are just standing there doing nothing, kind of awkwardly. But then there there's this they're also having all this magic uh, potion that they just uh, consumed it's kicking in and so they're beginning to feel kind of magical and invincible it's it's a wonderful scene but it it you mentioned all the scenes that take place in in movies involving elevators and um and when you do think about them the, the elevator becomes this interesting space from just a storytelling mm-hmm. point of view because it is a, it is a space between it is a space where you can uh encapsulate your characters and force them to have a little small talk and maybe uh, you know push the plot a little little forward uh it's a great way to transition between one set and another uh and then you get into all the hijinks of climbing out of elevators climbing on top of them becoming stuck in an elevator right a classic um classic way to do a very limited episode of a tv show I'm, i i wonder how and there, it's always like a woman giving birth in an elevator that's a, that's another big one that's always happening on tv so it is yeah, I think I so. I miss that. Wow. I feel like there's a supercut online on YouTube somewhere of just scenes of women uh, who are pregnant in elevators. So. Hmm. I'm not going to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
You know, as we were discussing this, this actually reminds me of the movie Inception, which we bring up every once in a while. But there is a great narrative technique, now that I'm thinking about it, of his psyche being in line with an elevator. So when he plunges into his dream world, uh, Le- mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio's character, then he descends in the elevator, um, particularly when, when he has like a very tragic memories that he's revisiting. Oh, yes. So, yeah, I mean, it turns out that the elevator is is a great metaphor for, as you say, the in-between spaces and life. And uh, it's something that we do take for granted, but it is so fascinating to me because, really, you're talking about, I don't know, maybe a 20 to 30 second ride on an elevator, and yet it can sometimes be the most awkward ride. Mm-hmm. And it is one of these great things. Is it's a microcosm for, for really how we act in social situations. Um there's so much going on in, in just that little span of time. And when you really think about it, I mean, what is an elevator? But it's really a, a box suspended by ropes and a counterweight. And remember that, it, you know, for us, it's not a big deal. But if you were in the early 20th century and uh, you were an office worker in one of the beautiful, beautiful new sparkling skyscrapers, this would be a really weird experience for you. And, you know, you would you'd have to deal with getting into this this metal box that's going to go up this narrow little shaft and what that meant to you psychologically. And I wanted to point out that this is about the time, at least in the 40s, when skyscrapers really became prevalent, that you began to see music or music being piped into elevators because what they're trying to do there is psychologically set you up for this feeling that everything is okay and they give you the most bland vanilla music to pipe in. Uh, so, you know, again, we take that stuff for granted, but if you were someone in that time period, you know, 1900s to 1940s, this would be kind of a weird thing. And by the way, the Muzak playing in the background there was, uh, was track two from a 1974 Muzak LP known to collectors as the Blue Album. So yeah, you don't see Muzak any, anymore, or at least I haven't encountered Muzak in forever on, a, on, on board an ele- elevator. Now they try yeah. different <laughs> tactics to try and make you, um, Think about something other than the tiny suspended box and a shaft that, that, that is your environment. Yeah, I read somewhere that the Muzak became so associated with elevator rides that they got rid of it because it was just reminding people that they were in an elevator. Yeah. So. I mean, you still see it in movies, I think. Uh, people still reference that, the, the idea that, you know, it, it kind of drives home the awkwardness of an environment where it's like you're standing right next to a total stranger and there's funky music playing like this but not but not real funky music but like muzak this which is kind of the uncanny valley of music anyway <laughs> this driving home the awkwardness and artificiality of your setting i love that now i'm thinking about a robot just staring back at me vacantly yeah. in, in the form of music which really that is what the old muzak was like um okay so before we go and give you guys a little bit of history um of elevators and get then go into the psychology we did want to cover something really important, and that is the door close button. Yes, the door close button, which I think we've all hit it at least once, probably 10, 20 times in a row. You know, that, that feeling where you, that I get when I've, uh, I've, I've arrived on the train, I, I hurry up the escalator, I walk into the front door of the building, and then there's an elevator already arrived on the, on the ground floor just waiting for me. So I get inside, and I'm the first person in there. Now, at this point, I want those doors to shut because if they don't, like eight people are going to show up and they're all going to like different floors. And we're mm-hmm. on the, uh, what floor are we on? The 10th? Uh, somewhere up there. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I can't remember that. I push this button every day. I've been reminded that we're on the 15th floor, technically the 14th because, you know, they skipped the 13th. 
because that would be unlucky. Uh-huh. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, I rush onto the elevator and I start pushing that door close button. And it seems to you know, take forever. And and I always, I guess in the past, I always just thought, well, they don't, you don't want it to, to be a situation where you just push that button and it slams shut like a like guillotines, uh, twin guillotines. You know, that would be dangerous. You mm-hmm. would need some sort of delay. But I, it never really occurred to me that the button does not work at all, or at least probably does not work at all. Yeah, it, it probably doesn't because it turns out that buildings that were built, particularly from the 90s and onward, they they are not usually keyed so that the door button works. Usually, they're they are just in case of an emergency. Mm-hmm. So the door close button is really only going to work if you have a key for the elevator. Right. So, so. I just well, I want everybody to know that because <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been frustrated and said why won't the door close, and also felt a little bit of a fool and a jerk because you knew there was a huge amount of people that were stampeding toward you as you were pushing the the door close, and some, it's all for naught. Yeah, and then sometimes, it, I mean, rarely, but occasionally, also it'll be someone I know out there, and also I'll go to push the door open button mm-hmm. and it won't work or something. And then I feel like a jerk because they're thinking I was frantically pushing the door right, closed button right. to leave them <laughs> on the bottom floor. And people get kind of bent out of shape about their in their elevator situation. Um, as pointed out in some of the resources we were looking at, including the fabulous uh, article Up and Then Down, The Lives of Elevators by Nick Palmgarten, a 2008 New Yorker article, mm-hmm. which is about a thousand pages long, of course, since it's a New Yorker article, but it's excellent. It's like a It's like a mini novel about the history of the elevator, the culture of the elevator, and uh, one particularly harrowing example of someone trapped in an elevator for, mm-hmm. I believe, 41 hours. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get mention him yeah. in a moment, but it's a, you're right, it's set up really great because they take this guy, Nick White, the guy that mm-hmm. was trapped, but, and they but, use that as a reference point. Right. But one of the points that, uh, that Palmgarten uh, keeps coming back to is that, uh, and, and some of the people in interviews keep discussing, is that we hold elevators to this different standard. Uh, than we do anything else. Like I take the train to work, and if I have to wait 20 minutes on a train, it's it's just kind of part of it. It's smarter, so I just you know whatever. It's, yeah. It's just going to be a slow ride, and then oh, I'm next to somebody that's that's either a stranger or kind of awful. That's just public transportation. No big deal. If there's a delay, all right, this is part of the experience. On an elevator, I expect to wait no more than 30 seconds. I expect to ascend and pretty hopefully directly to my floor. Uh, which I'm told again is the 15th floor, and and I don't <laughs> technically and, the 14th. Yeah, and if any of these things get messed up, I, I get a little bit out of shape about it. Yeah, and and that's what uh, is so interesting when you look at trying to actually engineer a decent set of elevators, and we'll get more into that. But uh, let's talk about the Otis Elevator Company because this really is the gold standard in the industry. Yeah, you've all been seeing the the word Otis inside your elevators all your life, and uh, and I never really thought about it beyond just making a quick uh, reference in my mind to old Andy Griffith's episodes, you know, where you had Otis the drunk, and I imagine him on an elevator, and that's kind of the end of it. (laughs) But they are the elevator company in the United States and one of the major players globally. Uh, most of their work these days isn't even in the United States. They're, they're going right. to, uh, to Asia and the Middle East and they're, uh, they're advising and installing elevator systems in these m- magnificent high rises that, uh, that everyone, uh, you know, freaks out about on the internet. I mean, everyone's, you know, always sharing a picture of either the, the newest skyscraper under, under construction or the plans for this elaborate skyscraper mm-hmm. that they're going to build in the desert somewhere. And, uh, of course, any time you're designing a building like that, any time you're looking to cre- to create something like that, elevators are an essential part of it. I mean, without elevators, we would not have skyscrapers because you need a way for 
um, able-bodied people to reach any floor in pretty, uh, you know, pretty in a pretty uh, short amount of time. And then you also need um, disabled individuals, mm-hmm. individuals who are not up to multiple. Just for it to make sense at all, you have to have an elevator system. And it's a particularly an interesting business now with the skyscrapers and the the tallness of them because, you know, basic physics will tell you that if you reach beyond a thousand feet up in cabling for an elevator system, that's about the top of what you can get there because otherwise your cables will snap. So you've got a bunch of engineers working on this problem because a lot of these buildings are are much higher than that, especially if you look at something like the Burj. So there's some really good meaty uh, problems to work on. Uh, for engineers and mathematicians. Uh, but before we start uh, looking more at the modern systems, let's talk about Alicia Graves Otis. He founded the company, Otis Elevators, in 1853 mm-hmm. when he figured out an operating system that could prevent free falls in passenger elevators, which is always nice. Yeah, because the basic idea of an elevator is pretty ancient. The, the basic physics of hauling a box up, I mean, that dates back to uh, you know to, to the ancient Greeks. Well, yeah, I read something, too, about the first century B.C. Romans would operate lifts using pulleys with humans, animal, and water power. Right. So, yeah, Yeah. it is a very simple process, if you think about it. But, yeah, it wasn't until we really had the safety features in mind that we could – and also the the ability to build multiple skyscrapers that it really became a thing. Yeah. And then in 1948, uh, Otis introduced the automatic elevator system, and that eliminated the need for operators. So no longer did you get into the elevator, at least in most office buildings, and was there an, an attendant there. Now, that did introduce an element of randomness, because... Before this, you had someone in the elevator who knew where you were going mm-hmm. and knew sort of the, the traffic patterns of people and would call that out to the operator. So mm-hmm. it was easy to anticipate traffic. But when they moved to the automated system, it was a little bit more of, of, um, of a, okay, well, nobody knows really the, what the traffic patterns are anymore, and people had to wait a little bit more. Yeah, it was apparently in the 1940s where we saw that shift from elevator operators to operator-less elevators, mm-hmm. which instantly makes me think of Mad Men. Um, yeah. I can't remember. Do you watch Mad Men? I've caught it before. I haven't yeah. seen all the seasons. Well, they make a lot of use of the elevators because mm-hmm. they work in a high-rise, so there's a lot of room for scenes where individuals encounter each other um, awkwardly or well, generally awkwardly in the elevator, but then also some excellent scenes. There's one in particular where Draper goes to take the elevator down mm-hmm. and the doors open to just an empty shaft. And it, it has a lot to do with, I mean, it's thematically with what's going on in the show at that point. Uh, but, uh, but, but it's, it's a fascinating scene. Uh, and, and likewise, there's generally, uh, I think, uh, at least up until now in the show, there's always an elevator operator. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of looking forward to, the point when the elevator operator is no longer present. Because I guess this is kind of an old-fashioned building uh, that they're they're hanging on to that tradition. And I, I kind of want to see Draper's face when that goes away. That's kind of interesting, too, how that dovetails with the changing social ways at that time. Because you mm-hmm. could kind of think of the attendant as the chaperone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that sort of, I would guess you could say, very um, controlled relationship is, is flying away during that time, right, you the 60s, and people are beginning to be freer. So, again, here here's the elevator as a microcosm of society in mm-hmm. which, you know, no longer is a chaperone there and anything can happen in an elevator. Right, and now, as we'll discuss a little later, we're in an age where we see that amount of freedom 
vanishing more and more in the elevator. Mm -hmm. We see uh, technology taking over to the point to where we feel just like we're at the whim of whatever mysterious mechanical force is controlling this magic box. Uh, yeah, and so and there you go with the uh, the door close button, right? That's just an illusion of free will, right? Right. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that I stumbled upon when we were researching this is an old clip from a candid camera show. Do you remember yes. that show? Yeah, um, this was where they would, uh, you know, kind of a forerunner of reality shows. Um, Kind of like what was the show Punked, I think, was the MTV thing several years the back. The Ashton Kutcher, yeah. Yeah, where they would prank people. You know, it's just a prank show. They do, and some of it bordered on uh, what we would now call almost performance art or theater everywhere kind of mm-hmm. a shenanigans where you're creating something weird in a public space and then seeing how people react to it. Yeah, so, I mean, actually, in its purest form, it really is kind of a social experiment because nobody mm-hmm. was doing that before that. And so you had uh, this candid camera crew set up uh, basically, basically Confederates, and we've talked about Confederates before. These are people who are in on an experiment or a joke. Right. And what they did is they filmed an elevator, a bank of elevators. They had, I don't know, like five different Confederates go into an elevator, and then a person who's not in on it go in and observe what's going on. And quickly, you could see that people would react accordingly, like they, they would feel the pressure of those around them to do the the right thing socially. So what I mean is that if five Confederates went in and they all turned around and faced the wall, which is an, an unusual thing to do in an elevator, mm-hmm. the person would look around and then join them. Right. And in some of these, they would sort of hold out at first, uh-huh. but then they would succumb to the group think and look at the yes. wall. And it's it's fascinating, yeah, because there's this sense of... You know, conformity and wanting to to look like you know what's going on. Like I've been in, uh, we've all probably been in elevators before where you have a door on both sides. Mm-hmm. I particularly seem to to in, encounter these in hospitals for some reason. I just yeah. just because some of the the weird floor layouts that are involved, and there is a this kind of confusion that takes hold. Which door is going to open? Uh, not only do I need to know which way I'm going, and there's that sort of basic directional survival instinct in your mind, but you also don't want to look like you don't know. Which doors, though? You know, you right. want to look, you want to appear in control. You want to feel in control in this thing. Yeah, you don't want to f- look like a rube. And, uh, that's what's so funny about this candid camera clip because the Confederates continue to turn. Well, turn to the right. And then the, the guy turns to the right. And then they turn, you know, to the opposite way, to the left. And so on and so forth. Or they, t- they all are wearing hats and they take their hats off and he takes his hat off. So again, microcosm of what's going on socially and the pressures that we feel to conform. And it was just a really elegant little social experiment that was conducted by Canda Camera of all yeah. people. We're talking about the psychology of elevators at this point. So there are a few different factors that are mandatory in discussing our mindset inside of this magic box. The first of which, of course, as we touched on earlier, wait times. Mm-hmm. How long is this ride going to take? Because even if you're in there alone, you don't want to be there too long. And in the, and, and this is actually the sort of thing that elevator strategists and elevator designers are, are very key to understand. Mm-hmm. And it varies from culture to culture. But in the United States, 30 seconds. Like that's as long as anyone is tolerant, uh, being on an elevator. And this is really important. It sounds kind of uh, random, right? 30 seconds, so what's the big deal? But it turns out that um, office space is far more desirable if they can deliver people in that 30 seconds or less time frame. So you want to have a good office space that, that can deliver this. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about this is that when you get out of an office situation and more to say like an apartment building situation, people are much more forgiving. So you can 
add another 10 or 15 seconds onto that. In an apartment building? In an apartment building. Hmm. Yeah, because people they have their, their, their personal effects. They're, it's more about life going on and less. This is a job. I need to get where I'm going. I don't exactly. have time for your job. It, it reminds me, though, another, another college elevator thing was uh, another dorm that I was in was one called North Carrick in, uh, in on the University of Tennessee. And this one was, I, I think I was on the 10th floor of this particular dorm, and it was awful because we had two elevators uh, serving the entire building, and the wait times were just colossal. Unless you were like, maybe you know, if it was the middle of the night or something or some weird time, but the morning hours, afternoon hours, like key traffic times of the mm-hmm. day, it was just a colossal wait. The door would open and it would already be packed, and you know, end up just taking. Ten flights of stairs, uh, you know, in the summer, and just totally exhausting yourself and sweating all over the place, just because the elevators were that bad. And like nobody wants to encounter that. Like that just makes yeah. it's just we have no tolerance for it. Well, you know, and every once in a while, you will encounter an elevator bank like that, right? And mm-hmm. what it's doing is that it, it's it's a it's not cross referencing any of the data that we'll talk about later. Right. It's not very sophisticated. It's basically just saying I'm going to stop at every stop that's going up, load people up. And then I'm going to go back down, and I'm going to stop at every single floor. So it's just sort of a single-function elevator. Yeah. In the New Yorker article that we were looking at, uh, he interviews a man by the name of James Fortune, who's pretty much the the, the top-class elevator advisor, strategist, uh, designer. Gets into all of all of these questions of you know how are we going to lay this out for maximum efficiency? Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the things they dis- he discussed were things that I had never really thought of. Like for instance, you want to cut down as much as possible on floor to floor travel. You know, oh inter interfloor inter- travel traffic. because that yeah. the idea that yeah. some like even in our building where mm-hmm. I know that you cannot travel between floors via the staircase because of the lock system. It's set up so that if you want to take the stairs. You better be going to the ground floor. There's mm-hmm. no using it to go in between floors. It's just part of the, the safety system here. So I'll see individuals who work for a business that occupies two different floors in this building. I'll see them go from one floor to the other. And even though I rationally know that they have no choice but to do that, I still have this really judgmental voice in my head that's like, come on, lazy, take the stairs. What's the matter with you? <laughs> and I guess it's a holdout from uh, from my college days in that awful uh, dorm. It's funny. In that New Yorker article, uh, I think that the author talks about how that's really infuriating as well. And, and, and I believe that his perspective is like, okay, you're going to go get on the Stairmaster <laughs> for an hour after work, but you won't take the stairs. Yeah. Now, of course, not everybody can, you know, has that luxury. I mean, yeah. Or, you, said, you know, you're moving from one floor to the next with a bunch of files or some coffee. Right. Right. Or maybe you have something physically going on that prevents you from exactly. doing that. But you're right. Mathematicians cannot stand it. They hate that because that is an X factor that they can't account for because they have all these probability um you know, scales that they can rely on, mm-hmm. but that's the one thing that will throw them off because how can you can account, how can you account for that? Yeah, some of the other rules that he, he goes into, for instance, if you have a hotel and you have a cafeteria or you have a check-in on a, on a second floor, that floor better be accessible via an escalator or likewise for a high traffic um, subfloor. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, when we were in uh, Minneapolis for the uh, uh, educational talk we gave, I noticed that the, the, the like, the bottom three floors were all connected via escalators. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I realize now that is because they didn't want traffic, high traffic between those three floors, monopolizing the elevator banks. 
That's right. And they only, because they had a very small amount of elevator beds, right? It was, right? It was a pretty small amount for a, a tall building. And that's another thing. Uh, architects don't want to cede a lot of square footage to elevators because that's going to decrease the profits on the amount of office space or hotel space that they can rent out. So they have to make it as small of space and as efficient as possible. And they also have to take into account personal space, yes. which is tied into culture. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. How close am I willing to get to the person in the elevator with me? Yeah. Edward Hall, who pioneered the study of proxemics, called the smallest range, less than 18 inches between people, intimate distance. Now, this is the dense, the, the point at which you can sense another person's odor and temperature. And the thing is that Americans typically like to be at least 2.3 feet away from, from uh, one another. So mm-hmm. they don't want to get to the point where they can smell you or feel your body temperature. Yeah. I mean... Even in the United States, you see a certain breakdown between, say, New York City and everywhere else. You know, like if, if you're dining, say, in a, in a New York restaurant versus elsewhere, like, like here in Atlanta, you go to a restaurant, you expect to have a certain amount of space between you and the other diners. You mm-hmm. expect the table to be a, a fair, you know, a fair distance across. But like, uh, you go into a lot of New York eateries and you are going to be, they're going to be elbows bumping. You're going to be looking down the shirt of the person directly in front of you. It's just, there's just a different proximity rule in New York City uh, than there is in, in the, the rest of the, the the country. Yeah, and it turns out that in uh, the United States, at least, you can sort of infringe on that 2.3 feet. You can mm-hmm. go about two feet in with Americans and, and still be okay with it. You can jam that elevator, and as long as everybody has two feet, they're okay with it. But as you say, like, you know, there are different rules in different places. And in Asia, you could double pack yeah. that elevator, and people would be fine because they don't have that, that um, much of a need for distance. Right, and you see that you see that uh, you know elsewhere, like public transportation. Um, you see that in the difference between the Japanese subway system and then uh, public transportation here in the states. It, how comfortable are people willing to pack? Now, I've certainly been on some MARTA trains before where it's just like sardines in there, but everyone is uh, is visibly upset by the situation. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, especially in the uh, the summertime when the car's yeah. air conditioning isn't working. Um, so again, this is pointing more toward cultural norms, right? right. What is what uh, works out for each culture? And there's a really great article in the Wall Street Journal. And they have profiled an Otis Elevator mathematician, Teresa Christie. Yes. And she tries to account for all the different cultural aspects as well as, as, as everything else that's involved in getting an elevator to run smoothly. And so she was saying that in a hotel in, say, Mecca in Saudi Arabia, she now has to account for the fact that um, people are getting ready to pray at least five times a day. Right. So she has to make sure that those elevator banks can respond to those high traffic times. Yeah, I mean, certain that's certainly a, a factor that is going to be involved in any of these uh, Middle Eastern high rises mm-hmm. that, that are always, you know, making the news either in construction or in planning. And then she was saying that in Japan, uh, there's a psychological element to waiting. So um, they want to know when their elevator is coming. So in Japan, the light over your perspective elevator lights up even if it's not there yet. And the the author of the Wall Street Journal likened it to a nod of acknowledgement from a busy bartender, okay. which I thought was great because if you've ever gone up to the bar and it's completely slammed and you feel that frustration yeah, until like, you get... Yeah, you're like, nobody noticed am I here? Am I, do I, am I not classy enough looking? Am yeah, I, is yeah. this because of me? 
And, uh, yeah, you can get a little stressed out about it. So I can, I can imagine that you, you get to the elevator banks, you want to know an elevator is coming. And so they're set up to, uh, to deal with that. Yeah. So those are just some of the cultural aspects of it. Um, now we probably should mention Nick White real quick. Yes. This is the guy that was trapped in the elevator in 1999 for 41 hours. Yes. And his, his story is covered in various articles across the, the net. Uh, and it serves as kind of the, uh, the narrative backbone of, uh, Palmgarten's, uh, 2008 article, uh, which again, I highly recommend everyone read because it's, it's brilliant. Uh, but yeah, he, what he, uh, he worked at, uh, Business Week, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, the, the elevator system there was a little archaic. I think they had, uh, four elevators. Or at least there were, there were four on, uh, in the video, camera, in the video camera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, he uh, he's he's at work and he I think he goes down for a smoke mm-hmm. and then he's coming back up. It's like a Friday evening, yeah, yeah. let's say five o'clock or something. I mean, it's later in the evening. Yeah, yeah. So he's going down for the smoke and what happens? Well, uh, you know, I think that he was traveling up to the forty-third floor mm-hmm. and he must have made it up to. Well, he definitely made it up to the thirteenth floor because I believe that's where it stopped. And so he doesn't freak out right away. He starts calling the emergency button. Yeah, you, like you do. Again, right. there's a button there. It, for an, an emergency, so you push it. No one, no one, nothing, yeah. zero. So the video camera, or the, sorry, the uh, security system that you see, the, the video footage from this is pretty fascinating because they speed it up over that 41 hours, and you see him pacing, you see him lying down, you see him fiddling with his cigarettes, because at first he wants to be the model employee and not smoke in right. the elevator, mm-hmm. you know, even though he's definitely feeling pretty stressed out at this point because hours are going by. Right. And then he begins to have oral hallucinations, right? Because yeah, he's hearing things. He's yeah. hearing things. I mean, we're talking we've talked, about we've talked before about this on the on, on the the podcast. Mm-hmm. You have a limited environment. Our brains need more stimulation than that, so they, yeah. they start overanalyzing everything, and eventually they start interpreting data that isn't actually there. Right, and you know, twenty hours pass, thirty hours pass. You know, he's getting dehydrated. He hasn't eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, those hallucinations are coming on, and he begins to think that this is a tomb, that this yeah. is that he's going to die in this. They're going to open the doors because and- yeah, he's he's tried pushing the button, nothing's happened. He's pried open the doors, and it's just a solid wall. And I think he sees thirteen scrawled there, yeah. in uh, which is also pretty ominous. You know? That doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and of course, he's seen enough movies to know that he should try to open that little hatch in the ceiling, mm-hmm. but he can't because in real life. Surprise, surprise, climbing on top of an elevator is incredibly dangerous. So they do not want you to do it. It's bolted from the outside. Right. That's so that if someone needs to get in and help you out, they can, but it prohibits people from potentially killing themselves by climbing on the roof. Well, because apparently, and it's not going to surprise anybody, but at some point in history, elevator elevator riding became a thing and people did it. Oh, like elevator surfing, yeah. Yeah, elevator surfing. And you've got those counterweights going by, which can decapitate you. So yes, for good reason they lock those. It is only for emergency situations. And he's in an emergency situation. He still can't uh, do anything about it. But uh, I feel just bad for this guy because the elevator kind of broke him. Yeah. 41 hours passes, he gets out, he asks for a beer, he's disoriented. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't know what day it is, he doesn't really know how long he's been in there, totally, and uh, and it, it kind of ruins his life. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, this job of 15 years that he held, he's let go from, he's obsessed and angry about it, he doesn't know why people didn't come and find him, Why? because here's someone who's, he just went out for a cigarette break, yeah. and he wants and the, to know why. And the video why. footage is there, like somebody was uh, was sitting there, walking by, and just did not notice 
that there was only ever one individual inside of that car and that sometimes they were laying down for hours at a time. So, yeah, (laughs) you totally sympathize with this man's breakdown because he was really dealt a a foul card on this one. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I believe it's in that Up and Down article, um, or one of the articles that we read, at least. Um, It may be another one, but... In one of those articles, they talked to him about it. He's like, well, of course I still have to use elevators. Mm-hmm. And yes, I still try to distract myself. But I thought about that, you know, when I got into my own elevator bank, you know, you've got the Captivate, at least in our office, we've got the Captivate screen that is trying to distract you from the fact that you're in an elevator. Which is brilliant because you, yeah, you get in there and there's no music, but there's this little TV screen that mm-hmm. gives you quick tidbits about the weather, quick headlines, that sort of thing. And it can be a lifesaver if you're stuck on there, not with a complete stranger, but sort of a, a pseudo work stranger, like yeah. someone you really don't know that well, but you feel obligated to speak to them. And then all you have to do is look up at Captivate, and then it'll give you the weather. And you'll be like, whoa, look, it's raining Saturday. How about that? Or Whew, look at that uh, Olympic headline. You know, instantly right. you have some sort of nugget that you can probably discuss awkwardly for 30 seconds or less. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that, that again, is the thing about the elevator is psychologically you're going to want to have, the again, the most vanilla conversation because on a very primal level, what's happening is that you're all stuffed into this elevator. You have no control. And so what the human thing to do here is, is to try to go to the spot where you feel non-threatened. Right. And really that's what we're talking about here is, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all a bunch of animals anyway. So we're all stuck in this elevator trying mm-hmm. to make sure that in that 20 seconds, nothing bad is going to happen. Therefore, the weather is fine. You can talk about that if you must talk. Yeah. And then we go home in the evening and watch movies and TV shows about bad things happening in elevators because we can't help but upset. We have to find that release in our fiction where somebody's having to have a baby in an elevator, somebody's having to crawl on the roof of an elevator, or your elevator is descending into a, the Chinese hell where people are drowned alive. So. You know, on that note, we should probably take a break. Yes, we are going to take a quick break, I guess for like 30 seconds. And then when we, uh, when we come back, uh, we will continue with elevators and to the, uh, the planning that goes into them the, uh, uh, and, and, and also the future of the elevator. What, what might that look like? All right, we're back. Uh, the elevator doors have opened, and we have arrived on the floor for our second, the second half of this episode on elevators. That's right. And in order for us to start talking more about the mathematical puzzle in earnest, we have to talk a little bit more about how our modern elevator system works. Uh, so one of the first things to know is that when you get into an elevator, it is automatically outfitted with load sensors in the floor. And that manages the amount of weight that's in the car. So if you've ever been in an overcrowded elevator and mm-hmm. you hear the door dinging, that's because the sensor is saying, hey, man, someone's got to get off. Yeah, and that's why elevator sensors and also hotel personnel can and will get visibly upset if people are jumping up and down in an elevator. Mm-hmm. Now, um, most elevator systems have a computer that logs a bunch of things, a bunch of, I will say, a request. Um, these things that they log is where a person wants to go, where each floor is, and where the elevator car is in that time and space. So if you press a button for the floor you want to go to, the computer logs the request, and then the computer notes where a car is by either a magnetic sensor or a light sensor, and it's feeding all that information to itself in an algorithm. Uh, more advanced programs will take passenger traffic patterns into account. 
they know which floors have the highest demand and at what time of the day, and they direct the elevator cars accordingly, if you're lucky, if you're in the office building, yeah. right? North Carrick uh, Hall at UTK did not have <laughs> no, an advanced system. it did not. In a multiple car system, the elevator will direct individual cars based on the location of other cars. So all of that is going on in the background as soon as you press a button. So it all leads to this big mathematical puzzle. It's, uh, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? How do you get the the, the cargo, the human cargo, from point A to point B mm-hmm. with the least amount of issue, without just totally clogging up the whole system, uh, without angering the people that are working there, but then uh, but also getting by with really maybe not the minimum, but a minimum amount of elevators because elevators take up a lot of space. You need the shafts. Mm-hmm. You need um, the the equipment rooms for them. And granted, uh, certain technological advancements have cut down on the amount of, of equipment needed to run it. But uh, for the most part, you're talking about a lot of space in a building. And space is, imp- is valuable. Space is pricey. Remember, that's why we're building skyscrapers to begin with, because we want to maximize the amount of office that we can fit on a single piece of land. And if we end up filling up most of that with elevators... That kind of defeats the purpose. And it also kind of depends on the function of that building. That's something that a lot of engineers and mathematicians have to take into account. So if you look at something like the Bronx family court system, the building that that's housed in, and you look and uh, back in 2007, you'll see that that whole court system was completely messed up. It was an absolute disarray because the elevators at its courthouse kept breaking down. Uh, and you couldn't use the stairs. <clears throat> uh, it's not, and it wasn't like uh, in our situation where the stairs are only for fire exits, so it's you know mm-hmm. it's just not they're not accessible. They they shut off the stairwells because they were a safety risk. They were just like a, right. an escape from New York hellhole if you tried to take the stairs down uh, uh, to the Bronx. Yeah, so if you had to go to the court, uh, ha- the courthouse in the Bronx in 2007, you were screwed because this led to hour-long waits which led to missed court dates, mm-hmm. which led to needless arrest warrants, and, of course, just the general messing up of people's lives. Yeah. Now, this is something that mathematicians and engineers really want to try to avoid if they can. So they start to look at various uh, probabilities, right? They've got um, probability tables that they rely on when they start to try to figure out this puzzle of elevator systems. So, for instance, if there are 10 people in an elevator that serves 10 floors, it will likely make 6.5 stops. You've got 10 people, 30 floors, then you've got 9.5 stops. This is somewhere they can start from. Yeah, these are just the odds of traffic, yeah. Now, there are two basic elevator metrics. One is handling capacity. So that's carrying a certain percentage of the building's population in five minutes. And by the way, 13% is ideal. So if you have, I don't know, 5,000 people in a building, then 13% of those 5,000 people should be serviced by your elevator system. Yeah. Uh, the other metric is the interval or the frequency of service. So the average round-trip time of one elevator divided by the number of elevators. Okay. So now think of... All the other factors, like door open and close time. Yes. Loading and unloading time. You guys out there who are looking at your smartphones or your Blackberries when you should be disembarking, right? you know who you, you are. You realize the last second you were supposed to get off, so then you'd make a dart for the roll and <laughs> stall everything out. That's right. You're increasing the unloading time. Of or course, you I've done have that a situation too. where the thing is packed, and, and who needs to get off the elevator? The 
little old lady in the back of the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so everyone has to sort of disembark and they're a little, they're a little wigged out because they're having to do this and oh, what if they get stranded on the, on, on the elevator? Cause that's, a, that's kind of a, a mild fear. If you get off on the wrong floor, you're going to have to take the elevator again to, uh, maybe to, to the bottom, depending on the system. And it's going to be a, a whole headache. And you also have acceleration rate and deceleration rate. So when mm-hmm. the elevator is stopping and <clears throat> of course, what we talked about before, Interfloor traffic, yes, which is the thing that it's sort of the, the wrench that that you throw in that just kind of messes everything up. Oh, and then to say nothing of phantom button pushers, you oh, know, yeah, that yeah. is always the the worst when it opens and there's nobody there. Where did they go? I guess in in reality, there might have been another elevator coming up and someone got off on that floor and then they they just hitched a ride on that one since it was there. But then my elevator arrives and it opens and you're just like, I guess it's the little girls from The Shining again. Or the Phantom Farter. The Phantom, is that an, oh, that I guess that is a oh, That is thing. a thing, I think. Yeah. The Phantom Farter pushed the Phantom floor. Hmm. Because that is another unfortunate reality of, of elevators. Two people in an elevator, nobody is allowed to pass gas because it will be known who did it. Yeah. But three or more, people just feel like they have just a, an, a, a, an open license to just let it rip. And it's just an enclosed environment, so. Well, and there's some people who do it on purpose. Really? Um, people like, I know someone huh. in my family, and I'm not going to mention. <laughs> I told you, I have a very scatological family. Who they do this on purpose? It's um, <laughs> good to know. Anyway, that is not, fortunately, a factor that mathematicians have to figure out the, the actual farting capacity. <laughs> um, but it, I did want to mention again the Otis Elevator mathematician Teresa Christie because she developed algori- algorithms using uh, a computer simulation program. And that replays elevator decision-making. So she gets to see it in real time. And in that Wall Street Journal article called The Ups and Downs of Making Elevators Go, she says, I feel like I get paid to play video games. I watch the simulation and I see what happens and I try to improve the score I'm getting. Which is so cool. I love that, mm-hmm. that that's part of her process. She's thinking about it that way. And she recently worked on the Empire State Building and was able to decrease the amount of time by I think ten seconds, yeah. um, the time that they are actually in the elevator. The history you could, based on some of the material we we're looking at, you could basically write a book just about the history of elevators in uh, the Empire State Building uh, because you have you have an, they've been around for so long. You have some really catastrophic things happening from time mm-hmm. to time, such as when the um, uh, the aircraft crashed into the Empire State Building and it and the the impact severed uh, the the cables in one, perhaps two, of the elevators. Mm-hmm. And at this time, you still had elevator operators, so they plummeted with those elevator operators on board. And I believe, uh, no, no, I believe one operator was on board and one was not. Mm-hmm. And the one woman aboard the elevator ended up living, as I recall, because the, the cables were coiling up at the bottom of the elevator shaft as mm-hmm. it plummeted, because it had to fall quite quite a distance. And by the time that it hit the bottom, it had a sort of cushion going. So she was really... She was badly injured, yeah. but she did survive. And she was crouched in the corner, right? Yes. So that when the impact came at the bottom of the elevator, too, and kind of crumpled in the middle, she wasn't affected by that yeah. part. Um, so, of course, we should say that elevators are really, really safe. I mean, the statistics on how safe they are, 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 are will make you feel much better. Otis will typically show you statistics that argue that they are safer, safer than escalators. Because yeah. even though there are more elevators... Than escalators, uh, the, the percentage of accidents is apparently higher with escalators. Uh, likewise, most of the individuals who are injured or killed aboard elevators are people who are working on them. 
So they're, right. they're in a, a heightened state of danger because they're on top of them or they're repairing uh, broken elevators, etc. Now, again, this is something that uh, someone like Teresa Christie has to keep in mind when she's developing algorithms. Um, and when she programs an elevator system, she also uses different weights for the average person by region. So, for instance, the average American is 22 pounds heavier than the average Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has to account for the way that people arrange themselves in an elevator, which turns out is is a... Uh, Across cultures, it turns out that people will arrange themselves into various geometric patterns each time a new passenger gets on an elevator. So it's pretty, it seems very instinctive. So if you have two strangers on an elevator, they will gravitate to the back corners. A third person will stand by the door creating an isosceles triangle mm-hmm. until a fourth person comes in, and then they'll spread out uh, through all four corners, and then so on and so forth as people board. Yeah, I believe that the the article we were looking at, they had they used a, a dice as yeah. an example. Yeah. The position of the dots on any given side of a dice more or less illustrates how people uh, 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 position themselves on a crowded or less crowded elevator. Uh, and it's you know similar to a lot of the rules that uh, that govern uh, the bank of urinals in a men's room. Where are where where is a man going to stand if there's if there's no one at the urinals? Where will the second person to arrive stand? Where will the third, etc.? Because no one wants to be too close to the uh, you know awkwardly close to the other individual who's taking a leak. Yeah, I always wondered about that for you guys. That's yeah. got to be very bizarre. Someone yeah. just like if you're in there by yourself and someone just cruises up right next to you. Yeah, if, if it's a long bank, like if it's a bank of like a rest stop bank of like six urinals, it's a little weird if somebody stands right next to you. Now here at work, we just have two urinals, so it's you know you're gonna stand next to somebody and hopefully they won't talk to you. I was gonna say, is there chit chat? Um, depends on the individual. Some mm. people seem like they get a little nervous and they have to start talking, and mm-hmm. it's weird. But most people seem to be governed by the no talking while urinating. I think that should be like yeah. the same set of rules for the elevator, right? Don't stand too close and yeah. and, and don't chit chat. Yeah. Really. <laughs> All right. Um, Teresa Christie, the uh, she is one of the premier engineers for for Otis and mathematicians. She has created about fourteen patents, and one of the patents I really love is called the surfboard feature. Yes. And I want the codes. This is something I wish that I was a great hacker because I would I would hack in just to get the codes to elevators because this feature allows you to essentially turn any elevator you're in into an express elevator. Yeah, because the situation here is that in Hawaii, you have individuals who are taking the elevator, but they have a surfboard with them. So if they're on board with the surfboard, there's not room for anyone else really to get on board no. with them. They, so they really need a direct line from from their floor to the ground floor. And you know, this has a lot in common with, there are express elevators out there. For instance, uh, really tall buildings, we, we, we mentioned the, the limits of elevators earlier. They can only, you can only build an elevator shaft so high, and then the physics get involved and they prohibit anything else. So you'll have, what you'll have is you'll have a, a, a landing platform, like mm-hmm. halfway up the skyscraper, and you take an express elevator to that, and then you wait on an elevator to ser- elevators to service the higher floors. So the idea of an express elevator isn't new, but what this is doing is creating a custom express elevator for privileged um, guests, for surfers. Yeah, and you know what? This is one little odd uh, tidbit that I wanted to throw out there uh, that we did not talk about, and it's a type of elevator system called the Destination Dispatch in which you key your floor number into a pad in the lobby. Mm-hmm. 
and the computer then tracks where the cars are and assigns you an elevator bank number. Right. So and, oh, and these are the ones you go in, and then there are no buttons. No buttons yeah. whatsoever. So uh, the illusion is just shattered. You have yeah. no control. You're in an elevator that you cannot uh, manipulate in any way. Yeah, I believe Palmgarten was the one who who compared those elevators to... Um, like an elevator in a Bond villain's mansion or something. You know, you're on board <laughs> yeah. and you're like, who's in charge? Is this going to open up, you know, on the, in, 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 into the, like the, into a pit of sharks or something? I don't know. I'm totally out of control. And, and again, it comes back to the idea that our technology, uh, the technology, um, uh, narrative of the elevators mm-hmm. is, is giving us power and then sort of, and then steadily taking it away. It's, it's interesting to behold. How it dovetails with the, yeah. whatever else is going on in the world in, of technology. Um, I wanted to point out that, that, uh, jumping just before impact, this is something that you hear about sometimes, like, oh, if an elevator crashes, you can jump just before impact mm-hmm. and you'll be fine. That's a myth. That's a myth. Yeah. I wanted to close it out with that because... There's never any reason to jump on an elevator. Never, right. As you say, that'll mess up um, the weight sensors. And there's two problems with that scenario. You can't jump fast enough to counteract the speed of falling. That's the first problem. And you wouldn't really know when to jump, right? Yeah, exactly. I believe James Fortune, uh, when asked about this in uh, Palm Garden's article, he just said, well, dead is dead. <laughs> he's, he's kind of a grim uh, individual. He'd been in the elevator business a long time. Had a, a very... Very straightforward outlook on these. He'd been in so many elevators, he had been thinking about being entombed for a while, I suppose. So the future of elevators. Um, This is, of course, a fascinating... We 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 end up getting here, and we end up getting here in most of our podcasts. What does this mean for the future? Mm -hmm. How will this change in the future? And a number of these technologies we've talked about, I mean, that is the future. The idea that we're going to see more and more elevators where we have less and less control. It's all in the computers. There are no buttons. Maybe they have some buttons, but it's just about giving us a false sense of power. Um, also, smaller engines, better cables, sort of a s- technological increases in small areas that improve and, and sort of whittle down and, and perfect the existing product. But as far as rapid changes, as far as like really game-changing mm-hmm. changes, it, it's less certain in that area. Because instantly, when you think of high-tech, crazy, fantastic elevators, you probably think of two things. You probably think of the elevators in the starships and in, in Star Trek, mm-hmm. which uh, which could move just about anywhere in inside the ship, horizontal, vertically. Um, likewise, I think you see those in the recent Total Recall movie. They're elevator yeah. boxes that move up and down and sideways, and of course the Wonkavator mm-hmm. that can go sideways and diagonal ways and just can and can fly and it's glass and it's the most marvelous thing ever. Now, there uh, Otis did have a design. Uh, and uh, they were working on it in the late 90s, and it was called the Odyssey. And this, and they had a prototype um, f- for this as well. And this is a, essentially an elevator that can travel horizontally and vertically. So instead of instead of having to take that express elevator up and then and then get off and then board some more elevators, you would have an elevator that could climb halfway up the building, then move horizontally into another elevator shaft and then climb that one. Yeah. So it was a really, I mean, everyone there was really excited about mm-hmm. it, and it, it was going to be huge. But then the 1997 Asian financial crisis hit. Uh, there was a rising cost of electricity, and it basically the idea was scrapped, or at least put on the back shelf to maybe be picked up later on. But as Palmgarten points out in his article, one of the things is that the elevator essentially, in most people's minds, is already perfect. I mean, it's it's not perfect. There, you know, we we want things. This we want the the thirty seconds or less, mm-hmm. and the faster it gets, obviously, the better. But for the most part, nobody is demanding 
these crazy changes. Well, yeah, uh, necessity being the mother of invention. So until buildings really start to get more, I guess, uh, horizontal and vertically oriented, we probably won't see elevators change that much. Now, I, would, I, I do want to add, though, that there are pressurized elevators now in, uh, in at least one of the, the high-rises in, uh, in Dubai, I believe. So you are seeing that technological change take place, and that's kind of futuristic, the idea that the elevator is pressurized like a spaceship. But, uh, but for the most part, don't expect the wonk evader uh, to be available <laughs> in your area just yet. That's right. Now, um, if you are a gearhead and you want to have a, a bit of a deeper dive into more elevator specifics, including hydraulic systems versus, say, roped systems, check out How Elevators Work by Tom Harris. That's on HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, it's a great ar- article that will uh, take you through every different aspect uh, mechanically of elevators. And uh, I have a little quote to take us out. All right. And if the elevator tries to bring you down, go crazy. Punch a higher floor. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, Who's ding. that a quote from? Prince Rogers Nelson. Oh, I don't know that song. Song? And then if the elevator tries to bring you down. Oh, okay. Go crazy. <laughs> no? All, All right. right. <laughs> I'm sure that m- many listeners will know what you're talking about. So that's good. I like the quote. I like the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, we're going to skip... Uh, our listener mail, since we went a bit long on this one, and and goodness, we could have probably kept going there because we ended up getting so many cool facts about elevators. We didn't even get into some of the crazy things people do on elevators. The the ice cream story that I think you've shared before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your father was on an elevator with an ice cream cone? Yeah, he was in his office building, and the woman next to him said, That's, that looks really good. And he said, it is. And she leaned over and took a big bite out of it, <laughs> and then the doors opened and she got off. And then you said that you yourself have, uh, at times, danced on elevators. Did you say uh, this? Dan- I, I've done a, I've, I've done a lot of singing. Yeah. Let's, we probably singing. shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would love to hear our listeners uh, talk about that. So, if if you have some insight into elevators, elevator culture, elevator design, uh, we would love to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Particularly, what's the craziest elevator you've ever been on? Be it super high tech or crazy archaic. Um, What's your favorite scene with an elevator from a movie or TV show? Um, be it something realistic or just completely unrealistic. And uh, and what do you think about your interactions on an elevator? Has someone ever taken a bite of your ice cream? Do you dance or sing? How do you interact with strangers or pseudo-work strangers uh, on, when you're aboard an elevator? We'd love to hear from everyone about this uh, these, about these questions. So you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And we're also on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And if you are the ice cream bandit and you want to confess, you can write us at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.